Welcome to the Journey of Innovation for Mental Health and Cancer Care in the UK podcast series. Produced by the International Hospital Federation, this three-part podcast series from the Department for Business and Trade will showcase the best of British innovation in our UK NHS services in the run-up to IHF's World Hospital Congress in Lisbon in October. The Healthcare UK team, part of the Department for Business and Trade, works jointly with the Department for Health and Social Care and NHS England to empower UK healthcare providers to do business overseas. In this second episode, we will discuss pilot testing of innovations and how they are implemented and scaled up in the NHS. We'll talk about how products are currently being tested, how their impact is measured, and then adopted into the NHS. We'll also cover what we can learn from failures in this process. To host this episode, we have Chris Bourne, NHS Innovation and Clinical Services Specialist at Healthcare UK. Thanks very much, Eleanor, and welcome back to the IHF podcast in partnership with Healthcare UK, part of the Department for Business and Trade. I'm Chris Bourne. I've uh, worked in the NHS for a long time, and now I'm supporting the NHS and companies to export and to partner with overseas healthcare operators and systems. So in the previous episode, we talked about the overall ecosystem of innovation, if I can call it that, in the, in the National Health Service in the UK and the NHS. And we touched there on the need for testing innovations that have come out of research and how we develop those, how we evaluate them, how we develop them, how we see what the impact of those innovations are, and how we then try and adopt them across a wider area, across more than one organization and across the NHS more widely, and using the, the evaluations we do and making sure that they become part of best practice across a wider area. And we're looking particularly today at mental health and cancer and how we take research into practice. So without more ado, I'm going to ask the speakers, very, very pleased to welcome the speakers, expert speakers we have today. I'm very excited to hear what you have to say. So could you please just introduce yourselves, starting with Professor Rebecca? Hello, my name is Rebecca Fitzgerald. I'm Professor of Cancer Prevention at the University of Cambridge. Thanks very much, Rebecca. And Professor Colette. Hello, I'm Colette Hirsch. I'm Professor of Clinical Psychology at the at King's College London and also at the Morsley NHS Trust. And finally, Marcel. Hello, my name is Marcel Gerong and I'm the Chief Executive for a company called Cited, which is a company working on non-endoscopic cancer detection approaches. Thanks very much. Welcome and really appreciate your time. So, as I say, focus of discussion today is really on pilot testing and getting those innovations scaled up into a wider area and into the NHS more widely. Could we start with you, Rebecca? Could you just talk us through the research you did, the the results you had, and how you went about testing your innovations in the NHS? Yes, thank you, Chris. So, my clinical background is in clinical gastroenterology, and the problem that I've been tackling throughout my whole career is how we move the diagnosis of this really horrible cancer, esophageal cancer, earlier, especially as we know there's actually a precancerous condition called Barrett's esophagus. Most patients with this cancer, unfortunately, are diagnosed at a very late stage. They have no idea that they had a precancerous condition, Barrett's. So the problem I've been trying to tackle is how can we uncover that large population of people who have heartburn, often older people associated with being male, overweight and so on, how can we identify within that risk group 
people who have undiagnosed Barrett's and therefore be, make them aware and then monitor them so that we can prevent late presentation of cancer. So the standard of diagnosis is endoscopy. And as soon as you start thinking about population cancer detection, screening, you have to start thinking about what's practical as a triage test and a screening tool. It has to be affordable, cheap, simple. And so we set about developing some time ago now a very simple office-based test that wouldn't rely on endoscopy. And there are two components to the test, a device which is swallowed by the patient, so a non-endoscopic device called a capsule sponge. And we called this cytosponge in the early days, so that's how it's mainly referred to in the literature. But it's a capsule containing a compressed sponge that you swallow on a thread. The capsule dissolves over a few minutes and then the nurse or whoever's administrating the test simply pulls it out over a few seconds and collects upwards of a million plus cells, which are now on this sponge. So you have a very good cell, cell collection device that then the cells harvested are tested in the laboratory. And the other thing we did was to develop the lab tests to diagnose Barrett's endosophageal cancer. So obviously, you know, it's one thing to have an idea that, as you say, the thing then is to test it and, and to see if you can then pull that through to the clinic. So obviously, in the early days, we had to do a lot of discovery work to find the laboratory test to do the proof of concept testing of the device and then go through to clinical trials, testing the intended to treat population and see if they find it feasible, acceptable, whether it's safe and then look at the diagnostic accuracy of the test. And then for early detection studies, you have to do large trials. So you have to go to that population and really see what difference it makes. So the latest trial we did was 13,000 patients randomized to what the GP ordinarily does, all this test, to see if we diagnose more cases of Barrett's. And we showed that we detected 10 times more cases of wow. Barrett's. 10 times. So that really set the stage to then implementation. And actually, COVID was a bit of a silver lining, but the NHS then came to us and we worked in partnership with them through their innovation program to then take it to the patients. But that was the kind of backstory of the research. That's brilliant. So, and just out of interest, I mean, what do the patients think of it? Because I guess if it's, a, it's got to be acceptable to the patients as well as uh, clinically Absolutely. effective. Yes. Yeah, these tests are no good if no one wants to come and do it, right? <laughs> so yeah, endoscopy isn't a very pleasant test. It's standard, it's routine, but nevertheless, it, it is uncomfortable for patients. It requires a day out of of your day to come to the hospital often to be sedated. This test is very easy. And for any cancer diagnostic test, screening test, they need to be very, very easy. So patients like it because they can have it in an office setting in a more familiar environment. They don't need to be sedated. They don't have to take a day off work. It's literally a few minutes of discomfort. It is no test. No medical test tends to be pleasurable, but it's <laughs> 10 minutes of a kind of, you know, just grin and bear it for a few minutes. You may have a sore throat for up to 24 hours, but it's generally patients find it really very acceptable. And when we've compared it against endoscopy, it's preferred. And how did you get the other clinicians like GPs and others, nurses, etc., to were they sort of easily persuaded this was a good approach? Yes, that's a good point, because you have to, of course, get all the stakeholders on board. So I think everyone in the medical profession recognises that this cancer is, is a terrible cancer type and diagnosed too late. There's increasing recognition for cancer in general that late diagnosis is part of the problem that we face with improving outcomes. So I think people were very on board with doing something different. Nevertheless, if you're asking some people to try something new and go away from their usual standard of care practices, you have to convince them with the evidence. They want to know whether it really is effective, what the diagnostic accuracy is. 
And also in busy practice, if you're asking people to do additional work in the first place when you're doing the trials and GPs are very busy and so on, you have to work with them and make it as easy as possible and support them. So, But I would say the reaction both from patients and with GPs and gastroenterologists has been extremely positive. Excellent. Thanks. Thanks very much, Rebecca. Perhaps we move to Colette now and just ask you a similar question, really, about uh, did you take a similar approach? What were the differences and how did you, again, get the testing of your approach done, whether it was in the NHS or I think, believe, maybe in the wider health and care system? Yes. I mean, mental health is a real problem with one in four of us suffering from mental health each year. And anxiety, depression are the most common among those. But what happens is that lots of people can't access treatment when they need it. And so what do they do? They turn to the internet. So a lot of people are choosing the quick solution of going on the internet and choosing what we call digital therapies where treatments are available digitally. However, 94% of those treatments have no evidence base. And so we're in this situation where we need to develop effective online interventions, but really do have an evidence base. So with the starting point for us was, again, thinking about really careful understanding of the situation. And what we do there is really try and identify the key mechanism that maintain anxiety and depression. And these often tend to be thinking habits, such as the thinking habit to draw negative conclusions when there's uncertainty. If I walk into an interview, I might think my preparation would be useful. I then feel confident that would help. Or if I was anxious or depressed, I would be tending to think all my preparation would be forgotten. So that will immediately put me on the back foot. Like for this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So what we established was that this key thinking habit was key in differentiating people with anxiety and depression. But did did it have a causal role? So again, we had to develop methodologies to test that. What we did is we developed an online computerized training which changes that thinking habit to be more in individuals with anxiety and depression to be more like that of the people who are not anxious and depressed and what we've shown in a number of studies is that that effectively can change that thinking habit and that actually causes the reduction in anxiety and depression in both clients with these clinical problems as well as those at risk of these clinical problems. So that was the approach that we've taken. And we're then thinking about how do you scale things up? And the good thing about digital therapies is that they are effective. They are, there's an appetite for them. You can do them when you want, at the time that you want, rather than having to go and see a therapist. And so in terms of, you know, patient choice, that's an also an, an important avenue. As a CBT therapist, a cognitive behavior therapy therapist, I work with clients one-to-one. And that is a really effective way of helping and overcome anxiety and depression but not everyone wants to do that and not everyone can access that due to their geographical location or their caring commitments or work commitments. Brilliant so and what particular patient groups are you focusing on? I gather I believe you had some particular uh, targets as it were. Yeah so initially it was people with a very challenging anxiety disorder called generalized anxiety disorder where they worry and feel anxious about everything as well as people with major depressive disorder. So those two clinical populations. But we were also have then thought about, well, individuals with long-term physical health conditions, such as people with MS or Parkinson's, they often have high levels of anxiety that are really interfering with their lives. So could we use the same approach with people with those long-term conditions? And we've been 
trying that out in and it, again in the keeping with Rebecca we were looking at the feasibility and acceptability of that intervention recruiting through the NHS health you know long-term conditions services to see whether people would like and engage with this digital intervention to help reduce and you've their also anxiety worked with pregnant women and being professionals that in facing their their That's professional right. roles so, Is that so, correct the same mechanism, this tendency to make negative interpretations is something that we know is pertinent to actually preventing anxiety. So we have a clinical trial at the moment being run in the NHS, which is recruiting women who are at risk of escalating anxiety during pregnancy and post-birth and using that same approach to see whether that can actually prevent escalating anxiety. In the other context, we've also done basic research, which has shown that the tendency to be resilient to very highly stressful contexts, like being an unpaid caregiver or being a teacher or a general practitioner, all those professions and the unpaid carers all have this tendency to be more resilient if you have more positive interpretations. So what we're doing, again, is we've shown that if you promote more positive interpretations in the less resilient individuals, that can be beneficial. Now, that's important because resilience itself is protective against anxiety and depression. So again, it's, it's kind of trying to get earlier in the, in the kind of process to try and prevent the mental health problems that, that will Fantastic. accrue in that's some That's really conditions. interesting. Thank you. I want to turn now to the, how you worked with the rest of the system, as it were. You know, what were the things that helped you? You're both academics, you're both clinicians. So what was it about the, obviously the university and the NHS organisations and indeed the voluntary organisations that you worked with were important? What other aspects of the innovation system, if I can call it that, helped you? What, what, you know, there may have been academic journals, there may have been other innovation agencies that helped support you. Is there anything you can say about what other partners helped you in, in developing this? Perhaps, sorry, can I just turn to Rebecca to give, a, give you a rescalette? You're right, Chris, that there are a lot of partners in developing any new test and then getting it into the NHS. So some of the large scale trials we've done have required substantial funding, obviously, and Cancer Research UK have been key funders for many of our trials. We've also tapped into research networks. So working across primary care and secondary care in our case. Mm. And, and so there is an established primary care research network and working with the NIHR, the National Institute of Health Research, to tap into their networks and infrastructure of research nurses and so on. So those have been critical. And then partnering with, as we move to walk closer towards implementation, working with the NHS Innovation Committees and NHS England, and using their expertise and leverage as well, with working with commissioners and the clinical networks. So it's been very much an enterprise that's involved many different stakeholders and all have, have been instrumental, I would say, in being able to go from the pure research, which in many ways is the easier bit, mm-hmm. through to actually getting it out into clinical practice. Yes, so you've got the whole NHS programme behind you, haven't you, uh, nationally, uh, introducing this across the whole of England, I gather? Yes, they've been very supportive and the NHS have had some great challenges with endoscopy backlogs, really compounded with covid And so we were able to work with them to help provide a solution to that problem. Excellent. Thanks. Colette, what was your experience of agencies that helped you? So again, in keeping with Rebecca, obviously the grant funding from the Medical Research Council, the Welcome MQ, which is a mental health charity, but actually also working with people with lived experience of these different kinds of problems and very specifically the population that we're trying to target to really make sure that we really understand from them how 
the impact of their anxiety and what triggers their anxiety and depression on a day-to-day basis so that we can really tailor things to those individuals. We also have been able to partner with some third sector organisations, for example, Maggie's, which supports individuals with cancer and post-cancer journey. And those those organisations have been very, very supportive and would like to be able to offer the intervention themselves. And we, I um, work in the NHS and have been using within our generalised anxiety disorder clinic that I lead, the actual method to actually kind of supplement our face-to-face therapy. So there's a range of different situations. Now that's part of a psychological therapies service. And that in the UK, we have a national psychological therapy service now that's rolled out. So there's potential to then roll it out across the UK in that way. Colette, thank you so much for reminding me because I, I was on the tip of my tongue, but the patient organisations have been hugely important to us. Heartburn Cancer UK, for example, and Action Against Heartburn, because getting the word out there and understanding what patients' preferences are, whether something, you know, how we measure acceptability, what the what their main concerns are about trying a new test and device and so on, has all been important, very important. It's all about the patient. <laughs> yes. Yes. And, uh, yes. That's really helpful. And Colette, you mentioned the National Psychological Therapy Service that is operates across the whole of England, at least. And so it enables you, if you like, to once you've found this wonderful intervention, to potentially roll it out across the whole country. That's really important. And that has different levels. So it could just be as a standalone intervention that could be done online at home for people, or it could be an adjunct to face-to-face therapy, which is great. Thank you so much. It's been really fascinating talking to both of you about this. But I'm going to turn to Marcel now, who's been patiently waiting. Marcel, can you talk to us about the experience of testing your intervention in the NHS? Tell us about the product and how it was tested in the NHS, please. There's a wonderful follow-on I can do here from Rebecca, because I have been working with Rebecca since 2018, and CITED has been all about taking Rebecca's technology and Rebecca's work for 10, 15 years into the NHS. So where Rebecca was basically, Rebecca was referring to some of the programs around the NHS innovation landscape and Horizon screening committees, which are at work. We very much came in as an industry player. So Rebecca and I have been working since, since 2017, 2018 on this together. And then in 2020, realized that it's really, very, very difficult to get technologies out there into the NHS, but also make them available to patients if that doesn't happen with industry partners. So we decided to co-found Cited in late 2019, early 2020, and build an organization that was all around taking the technology and building the pathways to actually implement basic things like patient engagement and patient group engagement, all the way over to reimbursement frameworks and reimbursement strategies, building the operational backbone to deliver these tests in the real world, which you know, Rebecca also had a lot of experience in from a from a research perspective, how you run clinical trials, but then how do you go out there and actually run something as a as a program that is that has a sole purpose of being delivered to patients in a clinical routine setting, not necessarily only in a clinical trial setting. So we've really been ramping up from early 2020 and, and have built a pretty large team here in the UK all around taking the capsule sponge test and delivering it to different patient populations running our own laboratory here in the UK, having built a large network of clinicians that are engaging with the technology. And now, as it is out in the world, essentially taking the technology through the iterations it needs to go through to be able to address even more patients, to understand whether there's anything that can be changed to the technology to make it more acceptable or easier to ingest in our case. Yeah, the last three years for us have been all around 
take something that has been validated in clinical trials, understand what needs to be built as infrastructure around those technologies, and then really you know, trying to understand where the levers are to increase adoption, obviously fight the uphill battles in certain areas in the country where we either have challenges around health inequalities or reimbursement challenges, because even though we all know, I think this very well, but I think it's worth highlighting that even though the NHS is one one single entity, there's a lot of individual localized infrastructures in place, which you have to work with in order to get something implemented in a sustainable way and also change clinical pathways, not only nationally, but also regionally and locally in some cases. So that is what we have really been working on and have been building a team around very much on the industry side of things. And still collecting the evidence, presumably? And still collecting the evidence, yeah, working on all different types of real world evidence gathering and and analysis. And we have a very tight program on, for example, looking at, can give you a good example there, we have a very tight program, which we're running on understanding positivity rates of our tests and how that lines up with populations we've worked with in clinical trials and how all of that feeds together. Because the Chris, I think you're highlighting an interesting point that there's very often the sentiment of, okay, now it has gone out of clinical trial some companies then or some technologies have to take shortcuts and how they get it out into the market and then stop implementing the necessary clinical governance to make sure that they have a product or have a technology out there which actually is in line with all of the results that have been derived from those clinical trials. So now you, we have been... Yes, please. Yeah. Yes, you've mentioned you know, the, the uphill struggle some companies have to get their product into the NHS and that is a common refrain, I'm afraid. We are a big government system after all, although albeit you know, with very local variations. So what helped you, I mean, apart from having the, the research, obviously, support and base that we've heard about, uh, what helped you get into the NHS and, and spread across the NHS? Were there agencies within the NHS or alongside the NHS that helped? What would you say made the difference to get it in, adopted across more and more of the NHS? I think there's really three pillars that have helped us with that. The first one, Rebecca hinted at this already, was the engagement with NHS England and NHS Scotland at a national level. and very much compounded by the pandemic and the impact that had on endoscopy backlogs and how those were managed with our technology. So there was one fast track element at a national level, which has really you know, leapt us forward and probably leapt across a couple of stages where other companies might struggle with. But then as we've been moving out of the pandemic, it, it was really something which you, you just touched on, Chris, is getting all of the health innovation agencies, which as they're now called formerly academic health science networks on board, in our case, that was primarily driven by the NHS, yeah, the NHS Innovation Accelerator, which we have been part of. And now it's really trying to understand where the progress we have been having at a national level meets the local layers of the NHS. The challenge here, and I think all of the listeners also have an appreciation for that, is that reimbursement for certain technologies does not necessarily happen at a national level. There's a very strong drive required from a local level, and particularly Mm -hmm. as we now work with the ICS and ICB infrastructures. There's several loose ends that have to connect themselves, and managing that is something we have been pretty engaged in over the last year. So now we are working as much with local ICSs and not primary care Integrated care systems. There are new integrated care systems systems that cover each geography, yes. Sorry, just to explain (laughs) No, 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 of course. And trying to make those integrated care systems understand what the value proposition of the technology is, how can they manage their patient populations Mm -hmm. with that. And again, there's a difference here in every integrated care system has their own motivation and their own agenda and their own priority. So Mm -hmm. there's no one size fits all approach. There's a lot of tailoring required to understand their specific problems. 
some areas in the country have worsened off three backlogs than others, and some are more interested in population health than in in sort of downstream optimization of certain care pathways. But yeah, for us, it was really mm. the sort of like. So it's interesting, agencies. isn't it? Because you've talked about several components of the sort of NHS innovation ecosystem, if I can call it that. So there's the 15 academic health science networks now called innovation agencies, most of them innovation agencies, and also um, the NHS innovation accelerator you mentioned as well. So those are important, but it doesn't stop the slog of working with each individual totally. geographic area. We've got these new integrated care systems, integrated care boards with often new directors of innovation or similar titles that you have to persuade. So yes, but hopefully more and more of those see the value of an intervention like this, which, as you say, not only deals with backlogs, but it makes a much quicker and better experience for the patient. That's really helpful, Marcel. Thank you very much indeed. You know, was there anything that sort of went wrong, as it were, that you, you learned from that you'd like to mention? I mean, what's been your main lessons, if you like, from the experience? I think the main lessons probably have been twofold. First one the time we had in 2020 to maneuver the regulatory landscape, which obviously was completely upside down because of COVID and a lot of other diagnostic tests being pushed to market, was making sure that in a very diverse technology where you have a device and a, a laboratory-based biomarker, basically orchestrating the different components to work together in the right way at the right time. There's this big contrast to a clinical trial where you're very hands-on, which you initially during a commercial rollout, you are too. But in, essentially, you're building the foundation for something that needs less hand-holding as you go along from a technology perspective and understanding what you need to put in place in order for people to be able to access the right resource, get the right support in order to understand, for example, how they find the right patient populations to work with, which in a clinical trial is very, you know, it's very mandated, yeah. but in the real world, it is not so much. And there's so many conversations which Rebecca and I had over the last three years where we decided or where we talked about, you know, how are these individual sites recruiting their patients? Who are those? What risk groups yeah. are they in? Certainly one of the most, the biggest learned lessons, Chris, is how heterogeneous the real world of clinical practice can be. And then how <laughs> as a technologist or as a company, you have to understand where you fit, where you fit into this and how you manage it's that. It's the effect. old joke, isn't it, about getting 10 doctors into a room and having 15 opinions. Yes, Precisely. <laughs> and, uh, but not just doctors, it's, it's whole health systems and operators. Fantastic. And you mentioned regulation there. And I think, you know, it's interesting that we keep mentioning silver linings of COVID. How could that be? But one of them seems to be that some of the regulatory systems speeded up, certainly the MHRA in the case of the UK, for example. If I can now just come to an end, really, and ask you all a sort of quickfire question, really, about, because it's been really interesting to hear from all of you. Thank you so much. What advice would you give, if you like, to innovators and indeed health operators in other parts of the world in trying to introduce the innovations that you've been involved with? Perhaps we'll start with Colette. Thank you. Yes, I mean, I think that actually for innovation in the way that we treat mental health, it's not to try and think that we have to replicate as an online intervention, we don't have to replicate what's been done in a face-to-face -face therapy and that we need to have the basic research to identify the key mechanisms and then have different ways to develop that, those understandings to into an in intervention. So the prevention of anxiety in pregnant women is funded by NIHR, which is very much more integrated into the NHS. And I think that that's a really helpful funding to actually help kind of test these things out within the NHS setting. And I think the other thing is just to appreciate that as academics and clinicians, working with companies is also a really important part. So to sustain 
our digital intervention, we'll need it to be updated as changes in the, the browsers operate. So actually just thinking about how to work with companies in that way is also really, really important. But also just seeing that these there are opportunities for innovation by doing things very differently, a bit like Rebecca's approach is to do it completely differently. You know, we're not trying to replicate the face-to-face treatment. It's actually thinking about how can we do things differently and make a different offer. Thank Thinking you. out of the box. Rebecca, what would you, advice would you give? Yes, my top tip would be persevere. If you've got something that you believe in that, you know, really has, has evidence behind it that you're excited about, persevere. It's going to be tough. It's going to take time. It's going to be ups and downs, but stick with it because doing the clinical trials aren't, isn't enough if you want to get to patients. Listen to patients and clinicians. You have to bring them with you, them learn from you. And then partner, you know, you can't do it on your own as an academic. So, you know, find the Marcel of the world, you know, work out how you can partner with industry to get it out there. Fantastic. Thank you. Marcel, I suspect you'll agree with that. I do very much agree with that. Yes. I think there's one, let me add one thing, which is particularly, I think, aimed at the technologists amongst the innovators out there, which is build a deep understanding of what health economics and how public health functions. Because if you want to address a true problem that can have impact and scale it's very very important to understand how public or value-based health systems like the nhs work and where they actually have motivations to implement technologies and where not it's not about increasing costs to increase outcomes at all times it's managing a very fine balance between you know being precious with taxpayers money and understanding where interventions or technologies can have the biggest impact and building a good sensitivity around that i think is key and takes a long time and shouldn't be underestimated. And not just for government systems, but also for shareholder-owned health operations, I expect. So just to mention that I think some yeah, of our yeah, listeners I mean, will be running for profit yes. uh, for profit systems, and but the advice is relevant to them too. We, we really run out of time. It's been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much. We could go on for a lot longer. So just really want to give you all a chance to say goodbye. So Marcel, say goodbye. <laughs> Thank you very much, Chris, for having me. And Colette? Thanks a lot. It's been great. Rebecca? Thank you, Chris, and thank you, listeners. Thank you so much. I'll hand over to Eleanor for the final remarks. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode and are looking forward to hearing more. In the third and final episode of this three-part series, we'll be discussing innovations outside of the hospital walls. Please join us then. Healthcare UK, part of the Department for Business and Trade, are running the symposium Bridging the Mental Healthcare Gap, Lessons for Hospital and Healthcare Leaders, and the Roundtable Discussion, How Innovations in Early Diagnostics and Intervention Solutions are Being Implemented into the NHS and Improving the Efficiency of Cancer Care in the UK at the World Hospital Congress. For more information, visit the IHF World Hospital Congress website at www.worldhospitalcongress.org. Goodbye!